Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to Changes. It's Annie McManus here. Great to have you with me. Today's episode is unforgettable. It is one of the most powerful and important stories we've ever had on Changes. It's a bit longer than our usual episode, but with good reason. It's also, I think, the episode where I speak the least in the entire series of Changes. I just listened gobsmacked as my guest told his story. That guest is Anthony Ray Hinton. In 1985, Anthony was wrongfully convicted of two murders in Alabama and consequently spent nearly 30 years on death row for a crime he did not commit. His story is one of racism and unimaginable injustice, but also of remarkable resilience and forgiveness. It will grip you, enrage you, it will stay with you forever. It may even change your views on redemption and capital punishment at large. During his incarceration, Anthony watched 54 inmates walk to their deaths on the electric chair. He also heard stories of some horrendous crimes from his fellow inmates. For sensitivity, we've removed some of the more graphic details of the crimes committed. However, please be mindful that the content is at times upsetting. The same death penalty that sentenced Anthony in Alabama has been making headlines recently due to an offender being put to death using pure nitrogen gas, the first death row inmate ever to be executed using this method. Whether the death penalty should exist is being increasingly debated. According to the latest figures from Amnesty International, in 2022, 55 countries had the death penalty, of which 23 had not used it for 10 years. Globally, Amnesty International believes at least 28,282 people were under sentence of death at the end of 2022. Anthony himself is advocating for change. And by listening to his story, you can make up your own mind what you think of the death penalty. Prepare to be moved by an unforgettable conversation with Anthony Ray Hinton. Anthony, can I ask you about your childhood, if you don't mind? What kind of a boy were you? Well, I was born to a mother of 10 children, five boys and five girls. And I was the baby of the family. And I used to tease my mom when I was a little older. And I said, Mom, you kept having children until you finally got it right. Then, And uh, <laughs> me being the right one, you decided you wouldn't have no more. And so uh, to this day, I uh, get a little laughter about it. But my childhood was perhaps as best it could be. My mother never had money, but what I did have was unconditional love for my mother. And uh, I had brothers and sisters that we all got along with. We all respected one another. That was one of my mother's rules. I lived in a coal mining uh, community, and I grew up a community where it really meant it takes a village to raise a child. My mother didn't just raise me. My whole community helped form me 
to who I am today. I learned at a very early age what racism was uh, about. We were separated. Whites live over here. Blacks live over there. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. Or we used to go and walk to school, and we went integrated into this school. And we decided uh, to play basketball or football, and we would have to walk home because we didn't have a car. But on our way home, walking from practice, every car that we heard, we had to run in into the woods and just in case it was some white men that was looking for trouble. And I, as I look back today, I see how sad that must have been for me, and I didn't realize it, that here's a child was doing nothing but being a child. But yet my mother and my community had taught me to run before anything happened. And no child should ever have to go through the trauma that I had to go through as a child, being called all kind of names when you go in a store or telling you to go to the back or you don't have no right to be in here. So I experienced a great deal of injustice. Uh, And today I would use the word injustice because to me, racism is nothing but injustice toward another human being. But thank God that I was a child, that I didn't quite understand what it was all about, what it was, mm-hmm. what started it, what made uh, this person think they was better than me. Because as a child, my mother brought me up to believe that I'm no better than anyone, but I'm not no less than anyone. Anthony, what would you say was the biggest change you went through in childhood? Ooh, the biggest change to me was going and learning that other than yourself, everybody had an opinion and learning how to get along with people of other races, knowing what to say and not what to say. Uh, you couldn't say perhaps what you really f- was feeling because mm-hmm. that might start a race wire. And so you learn to keep your words in check. You learn to not be honest. You learn to say it's okay when it wasn't okay. That's the change that I had to adjust to, that I couldn't be who I were. Can you tell us about the day that everything changed for you? That day, uh, like any other day, I just woke up with a, not a care in the world, being free, uh, at least I thought I was free to do what I want, to go where I want. But uh, my mom was in the kitchen and she was making some lemonade because it was so hot in Alabama. Uh, My mom had instructed me to go and cut the grass. And as I was mowing the grass, I happened to look up and there stood two white gentlemen that I'd never seen before. And I cut the alarm off and I said, can I help you? And one of the gentlemen replied, we're looking for Anthony Ray Hinton. And I said, that would be me. How can I help you? And he said, well, we have a warrant for your arrest. And I said, what are the charges? He said, we'll explain that to you later. But right now, we want you to put your hands behind your back. I complied because as a child, you've been taught to obey authority. You've been taught Mm. to do whatever the police tell you to do. And so without question, I put my hands behind my back. 
uh, one of the police put the handcuff on me. And they proceeded to put me in the police car. And I said, at least allow me to go in and tell my mother I'm being arrested for something. And one of the detectives said, we can't let you go back inside. And we argued for about a minute or two. And finally, the other detective said, let him go in and tell his mother he's being arrested. And I just go in the house and I just show my mother the handcuff on me. And like any good mother, she began to scream and holler, what are those handcuffs doing on my baby? How old were you, Anthony? At that particular time, I was 29 years of age. And the Texas had taken him out while I was standing here and talked to his mother. A few minutes later, he comes out. We proceeded to go to the Birmingham County Jail and on our way there. Uh, one of the detectives asked me, did I own a firearm? And I said, no. I said, but my mother has an old gun that she keeps around the house for snakes. And once I revealed that to them, they dropped me off at a substation, went back to my mother's home and told her that I had informed them about a gun she owned. My mother gave them the gun because, again, I, I was brought up I always tell the truth. My mother always said, if you haven't done anything, then you have no reason to lie. If you haven't done anything, why was you running? Stand there and tell the truth. And that day I told the truth. They went and got the gun, picked me back up and kept me to the county jail. But on our way there, I asked the detective at least 50 times, why am I being arrested? And they never would say anything. And as they drove a little further, I asked for the 51st. And I said, perhaps a little louder, a little angry, than I'm talking to you. I asked the detective, why was I being arrested? And this seemed to set the detective off that wasn't driving. And he looked at me and he said, you want to know why we arrested you? I said, yes. He said, we're going to charge you with first-degree robbery, first-degree kidnap, and first-degree attempted murder. And I replied, oh, you got the wrong person. I haven't done any of that. And he looked at me and he said, let me tell you something right now. I don't care whether you did it or didn't do it, but I'm going to make sure you found guilty of it. I said, for a crime I didn't commit? He said, you must have a hidden problem. Then I just tell you, I don't care whether you did it or didn't do it. He said, if you don't remember nothing else, remember this. I am the one who's going to make sure you found guilty of it. And he turned back around and I'm going to say with less than five to ten seconds, he turned back and looked at me. He said, by the way, there's five things that are going to convict you. Would you like to know what they are? And I said, yes. He said, number one, you black. Number two, a white man is going to say you shot him. Whether you shot him or not, believe me, I don't care. He said, number three, you're going to have a white judge. Number four, you're going to have a white prosecutor. And number five, you're going to have an all-white jury. He said, do you know what that spell? And he repeated the word, conviction, 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 conviction. And as we got to the county jail, they placed me in this holding cell. And I had been in there for about two and a half hours when he come back. I jumped up and I said, detective, if you don't mind, tell me the date and the time this crime took place. He goes in his note and he tell me the date and he tell me the time. And when he told me the time, I said, thank God. 
Thank you, Jesus. And I said that because I know for a fact at that particular day, that particular time, I was on my job. And I told the detective this, and I gave him my supervisor name, his phone number, the address where I was working. And what I was so relieved about as a black man, I was relieved that he would be going to my supervisor who happened to be white. Mm. And once he talked to my white supervisor, he would realize that it wasn't me who committed the crime. Well, he went, talked to my supervisor. About three hours or four hours later, he come back and he opened his cell. I jumped up and he looked at me and he said, I have good news and bad news. He said, the good news is your alibi checks out. He said, we no longer going to charge you with first-degree robbery, first-degree kidnap, first-degree attempted murder. But now we have decided we're going to charge you with two counts, a first-degree capital murder. And I said, capital murder? I said, but I haven't killed anyone. He said, on my way here, didn't I tell you I didn't care whether you committed the crime or not? And I said, yes. He said, well, for these new charges, I don't care whether you did it or didn't do it. He said, but remember what I told you, I'm going to be the one that makes sure you found guilty. He said the same things for these new charges. And I looked at this detective and I was trying to explain to him that I could never take another human life. And I was talking and talking and he finally put up his hand as to say, be quiet. And he looked me in the eye and he said, let me be honest with you since you've been honest with me. He said, I truly believe you didn't commit the crime. He said, but since y'all, referring to all black people, he said, since y'all is always helping one another, and since y'all is always taking up for one another, why don't you take this rap for one of your homeboys who truly committed the crime? And I looked at that detective with tears in my eyes. And I said, detective, there's not a homeboy in this world that I would take a rap for like this. He shut the door and I sit in jail for a year and a half. And I finally go before a judge and the judge read off the charges. That judge, Anthony Ray Hinton, you've been charged with two counts First degree capital murder, how do you plead? I said, not guilty, Your Honor. He said, do you have an attorney? I said, no, Your Honor. He said, can you afford an attorney? I said, no, Your Honor. And he looked back in the courtroom, and he called this attorney up front. And he instructed his attorney that he wanted him to represent me on two counts of first degree capital murder. Well, without even asking me my name, without even saying a word to me, the first thing that attorney said, he said, I did not go to law school to do pro bono work. And I looked at the attorney and I said, sir, would it make a difference to you if I told you I was innocent? And that lawyer looked at me and he said, the problem with that statement, all of y'all is always doing something. And the moment you get caught, 
you cried, you didn't do it. This is the lawyer that I had to believe that was going to represent me to the best of his ability. This is the lawyer that I had to somehow try and convince that I was innocent. Well, that lawyer did exactly enough to get me found guilty. Uh, once they seen that I couldn't afford an attorney, they knew that they could get a conviction. They knew they could get someone to say that the bullets matched when they didn't match. And I never will forget the day the jury come back with a guilty verdict. The judge proudly stood up, looked me in the eye and said, Anthony Ray Hinton, you have been found guilty by a jury of your peers. And it is the order of this court that I sentence you to death. And that judge said, and may God have mercy on your soul. Just when I thought I had heard it all, the prosecution, the DA, perhaps said it a little louder than he intended to say it, but he could be heard over the courtroom saying these words. We didn't get the right nigger today, but at least we got a nigger off the street. And I was that nigger. And on December the 17, 1986, I was transported to Holman Correction Facility where I would remain until the day that they executed me. I never in my wildest dream thought that one day that I would be charged with capital murder, sentenced to death, and spend 30 years of my life in a five by seven. I wish I could tell you in your audience this morning that the state of Alabama made an honest mistake, but the state of Alabama didn't make an honest mistake. I wish I could tell you that being born black and poor had nothing to do with me spending 30 years inside of five by seven for 30 long years. The system that I once believed in, I no longer believe in it. The system that I once believed in had every intention of taking my life for a crime. They knew that I didn't commit. And that system came within a year of taking my life. Anthony, please, can you describe your surroundings in death row? I'm around over 200 men, constantly screaming, constantly crying, constantly hollering 24-7. There is no lights out and everybody go to sleep. Or on death row, if you want to stay up seven days a week, never get to sleep, they don't care. They don't care about you as a whole because at some point in some time, they're going to come and get you and take you and execute you. Did you have any natural light in your cell? No, no. Uh, I was uh, had nothing but barbed wire and concrete. Uh, I had a bed mounted to the wall and a toilet mounted to the wall, and that was it. 
Um, we didn't have TVs. We didn't have radios. We didn't have air conditioning like people think. We didn't have heaters. Uh, in the summertime, we almost burned up for heat. In the wintertime, we almost froze to death due to lack of heat. We was allowed to take a shower every other day. In the wintertime, the water was ice cold. And in the summertime, the water was hot. Mm -hmm. And so they played these mind games with you to keep you from getting so used and accustomed to coming out your cell just for the shower. And when you did go to shower, they would shackle your feet, shackle your waist, and shackle your hands. And once you got into the shower, they would un uh, take the cuff off so you could uh, take a shower. And you had five minutes to uh, get done and get it over with, and they'd take you back. You never did leave your cell unless three men or three guards escorted you. Or I ate breakfast every morning at 2.45. Every morning they was waking you up for breakfast and you couldn't say I didn't want it. You would have to get up, look the officer in the eye and say, I don't want to eat breakfast. And then and only then was you allowed to lay back down. So when I speak of this hell, Men was constantly screaming, hollering. You had men that had served in the war living next beside me. They thought they were still in the war, and they was uh, pretending that they was shooting a gun da, 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 all day and sometime. And, and so what I did, I had to convince my mind that I was living somewhere else other than that solitary confinement. And now that I realize I can use my mind to leave the hell that I was in any time, I live every day. I travel somewhere every day. I married while I was on death row to two of the most beautiful women in the world, Halle Berry being one of them and Sandra Bullock being the next one. I use my mind as a light for those that was in darkness. I started my own book club on death row. And they let you sit with the other inmates and they let you do that? Yes. Wow. And so I've always believed that all of us, we may not have as much as some, but we have enough that we can share and I had just enough hope that I was willing to share it with the other men. And tell me about the other inmates, Anthony. What did you learn about the people you were with and how did their relationships with them change you? I realized first and foremost that they were human beings. And then I realized that they were human beings who had some really, really bad upbringing as children. Lived in property, lived in houses where no heat, no water, just was in there. Half of them didn't know their father and their mother was too strung out on drugs. And instead of them being able to go to school, they went to school only to drop out in the seventh grade. And I asked them, how was they allowed to drop out in the seventh grade and nobody made them go to school? And they informed me 
that nobody really cared. And so these men took to the street. These men became children to the adulthood. And from adulthood, they became drug addicts. And they became dependent on whoever they can rob, whoever they can steal from to support their habits. And I would ask them, do they remember doing whatever they've been convicted of doing? And each one of them said, I didn't go into that house to kill anybody. I went in that house to steal so I can get some money to buy some dope. By being on death row, they was able to clean their life up and get off drugs. The true human being was able to come out for the first time in their life. They was around other human beings who showed them general concern and general care. When they was in the street, nobody showed them that they cared about them. And I would try my best to let them know it's never too late to have compassion. It's never too late to learn how to forgive. It's never too late to have understanding. What I've understood about these men, my life was different from theirs. I had a mother who cared about me. I had a mother who provided for me. I had a mother who believed in education. I had a mother who was determined that I was going to be somebody. Did your mother come and see you? Oh, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. My mother came to see me, and that was one of the things that all the other men who didn't get visit used to say, man, you and your mama must have one great relationship. She comes see you every week. And then they moved it from a week to month. And my mother came to see me until she got down in bad health. Mm. And my best friend, uh, Lester, my childhood friend, came to see me for 30 straight years for a total of 10,999 visits. Uh-huh. And regardless of what society said, he showed me that he was my friend and he was going to be my friend to the very end. And I am so proud to say to this day, we are still the best of friends. We talk to each other every day. When I got released from prison, he and his wife opened their home so I could have a place to live because I got out and I didn't have a place to live. And so I stayed with him and his wife until I was able to fix my mom's old house back up so I can live in it. And so even on the road, those men realized that I had some people in my life that loved me, cared about me. And what would break my heart when one of them would say, I wish I had somebody that cared about me like that. Thank you. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anthony, in your book, your wonderful, wonderful book, The Sun Does Shine, you describe a friendship that you made with a very unlikely person in there. You're nodding, you know who I mean. Would you mind telling us about this man and what, what happened? Henry was his name. Right. And Henry was born in a KKK family, better known as the Ku Klux Klan family. And his daddy was the Grand Wizard of the Klan in Alabama. And Henry was a Klansman as well. And one day, a jury found a black man not guilty for killing a white police officer. And the Klan didn't like that. And his daddy gave him and two other Klansmen in order to go out and kill the best, the first black male they came across. All of Henry's life, he was taught to hate. His mother taught him to hate. His father taught him to hate. His community taught him hate. And so Henry thought he hated people of color. So when Henry committed this crime, they apprehend Henry and they sentenced Henry to death. And so when Henry came to death row, they put Henry by me. And on death row, you can't see who it is. You just speak to people. And I said, hey, my name is Anthony. Everybody called me Ray on the road. And he said, my name is Henry. And Henry and I began to talk. And... About a day later, I found out and realized that Henry was a Ku Klux Klansman. And I realized that Henry was there for killing this young black male. And so I said, Henry, why you didn't tell me who you were? And Henry didn't respond. I said, Henry, why you didn't tell me who you were? And Henry didn't respond again. After I realized that Henry wasn't going to respond, I had to ask myself, did it matter who Henry were? And did it matter what Henry had done? And I told myself it didn't matter. You see, all of my life, my mother told me, no matter what one does in life, they still deserve compassion. She told me they still deserve to be loved. They still deserve to be forgiven. I forgave Henry. I had compassion for Henry. And I continued to talk to Henry. And over the course of 15 years, I got to know Henry. And I told Henry, I said, Henry, I want you to say whatever you want to say. I want you to call me whatever name you want to call me. I said, don't change up because you're talking to me. Be who you think you are, Henry. 
And over the course of two or three years, I realized that Henry wasn't using the N-word no longer. Henry was referring to me as Ray. Six years into getting to know Henry, I had asked the warden about this book club I wanted to start. Oh, I wanted Henry to be one of the people that read the book. And so the warden granted me permission to have my book club, and I chose Henry. And the first book that I wanted Henry to read was by James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And I wanted Henry to realize that we was nothing that he thought we were. To my surprise, when everybody was done reading the book, we went into this room and we sit down and Henry had wrote six pages back and front on the paper what he had learned about this book. And to my surprise, the first thing Henry said out of his mouth, I didn't know James Baldwin was black. I didn't know black people wrote books. I didn't know because my upbringing, I was never told that black people was doctors and lawyers and things. So Henry stood up in front of the class and told what he got out of the book. And I could see the hurt in Henry's face for the first time in my life. Because Henry now rec recognized that white people do have rights that black people didn't have. And I asked Henry, I said, Henry, how did that make you feel? He said, well, I felt that since he went and fought for this country, I felt that he should have every right that I had. And I said, Henry, you're beginning to grow. And Henry, you're going to grow a lot before you leave this place. Fast forward two years later, his father came to see him. Benny, and Henry begged for me to come over to his table. I got up, which I wasn't supposed to get up. I walked over to his table, and I said, what's up, Henry? And he said, I want you to meet my, my dad. He said, Dad, this is my friend, Ray. And I reached my hand out to shake his father's hand, but his father wouldn't shake my hand. And once I realized his father wasn't going to shake my hand, I went on back to my table and I said, I'll talk to you later, Henry. And after visiting hour was over, they carried us back into this room and they script searched you. And I looked at Henry and he was looking sad. And I said, Henry, what's wrong? And he said, oh, nothing. I said, Henry, come on, man. Something is wrong. What's wrong? And he looked at me and he said, my father told me as long as he come to see me, I am not to invite a nigger to his table. And I looked at Henry with a smile, and I said, Henry, that is your father cancer. If your father want to die with that cancer called hate, Henry let him die. But you don't have to die with that hate cancer. Henry, you have the opportunity to remove that cancer of hate out of your system.
That night, Henry and I talked all night long. I mean, all night. A year later, they sent Henry an execution date. And he requested that I sit with him the day of his execution because all of his family had died out. And the warden granted his request. That day, my job was to make Henry laugh all day. I didn't want Henry to think about today is my last day of birth. I, I wanted Henry just to laugh. And if I have to grade myself, I probably would get an A+. Plus because <laughs> Henry and I laughed all day. We talked about everything. And I got to the point where I even told him how crazy, how stupid racism really are. I said, Henry, I feel so bad for you. You didn't get a chance to enjoy your childhood for learning how to hate. Too many kids don't get to be kids because of what their parents think. And I said, I hope that one day you will get a chance to relive your childhood all over again. Now it's about... 9.30, they bring him his final meal. And when he takes the lid off his meal, I look at it, it's a six-ounce steak. I said, Henry, that's all you want for your last meal is a six-ounce steak? And he said, yes, Ray. I said, oh, well, you're ready to die then. That's all you want to eat. And he looked at me and he said, well, Ray, if it come your time, what you going to order? I said, when it come my time, what I'm going to eat, they're going to have to go to the forest and get it. I said, when they go to the forest and bring back whatever they bring back, I'm going to say, that's not what I want. That's not what I told y'all I want to eat. We laughed, and I said, Henry, I'm going to make them go back to the forest. And when they come back again, I'm going to say, that's not what I ordered. I said, in other words, Henry, there's a law in the book that says they can't execute me until I eat my last meal. I'm going to be alive for the rest of my life because <laughs> no matter what they bring, it's not what I want. Henry and I just laughed, and he looked at me, and he said, Ray, only you could think of something like that. 10.30 come to God, open the door, and for the first time, they allowed me to embrace Henry. And I hugged uh -huh. Henry like a brother. And I said, Henry, I want you to know that for the last 15 years, you have been a joy. I've seen you grow from hate to love. I've seen you change right before my eyes. And I said, Henry, I want you to know tonight that I love you, that I care about you, that I truly believe that one day we'll see each other again. And Henry looked at me and he said, Ray, for the last 15 years, I have enjoyed being around you. For I only wish that we had known each other earlier. And I said, well, I don't know about that, Henry. I said, oh. <laughs> Glad I didn't know you earlier, to be honest. I, oh. said, I said, Henry, oh, we met when we should have met. Yeah, right. And he looked at me as a surprise, and he said, Ray, I want you to know that I did give my life to God, and I did ask God for forgiveness. 
And I prayed for the victim family, and I hope one day that they can find it in their heart to forgive me. They allowed us to embrace one last time, and I told Henry, I'll see you soon one day. They take him away, and they clean him up and put him on new clothes. And since he had already ate his last meal, they dropped the microphone down, and they asked Henry, did he have any final words? And the words that I'm about to say is what I will never get out of my mind. Henry said these words, all of my life, I was taught to hate. The very people that I was taught to hate are the very one that showed me nothing but love. And as I leave this world tonight, I leave this world now knowing what real love feel like. And they executed my friend. And he was the first white man to ever be executed on account of killing a black man. Am I right? Absolutely. The only one. And it showed me, even in the midst of being on the road myself, I didn't judge no man because I knew I was innocent. I had a heart to forgive. And I have a heart that, as a kid, my mom used to tell me, you are responsible for how you treat others. You're not responsible for how others treat you. And I am so proud today to call Henry my friend. I am sad that he gone because I really believe that the day that they executed Henry, they took someone away from us that I believe could have taught us how to learn to talk to each other and learn to change your ways. Yeah. But he didn't get that opportunity. Anthony, 54 people walked past your cell to their deaths when the time that you were in there. You say yourself you were a year away from being executed. How did you get out? Nothing but the grace of God uh, mm. allowed me to get out. This nonprofit organization in Montgomery, Alabama, called the Equal Justice Initiative, took on my case and worked diligently for 16 years to make sure that the state of Alabama didn't execute uh, an innocent man. And by the grace of God, I wasn't executed. Uh, they dropped all the charges on me on April the 3rd, 2015. And they said, you was free to go. But I wasn't free. I was just let go. That system took my life in many forms that the average person don't never think about. That system took my mother. But my mother passed before I could be released. That system took my freedom that I refuse to this day to say that I'm free. I just say I'm out. I will never be free until the day I die. You see, because that system showed me that innocent men do not look behind their shoulders to see who is swallowing them. Innocent men don't look and live in their own home 
and worry about whether the police is going to kick your door down and do the same thing over again. And my mind is constantly is on death row where I know I spent half of my life for a crime I didn't commit. Nine years later, no one have had the decency to say, Mr. Hinton, we saw. I can't get over that. I can't believe no one has been accountable. No one has spoken. No one has tried to get in touch with you to tell you. That is unbelievable. I'm so sorry that you haven't had that. Not only have no one apologized, no one have asked me, do I need to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist? No one have given me one penny for the 30 years that they took from me when I tried to file for compensation. I was told to tell that nigger, just be thankful we didn't execute him. And for him to go on and just live his life. And every day I have to live with those words. Every day I have to be better than the men and women that did this to me. Who told you that, Anthony? How did they get away with speaking to you like that now when you came out? This is a system that is controlled by predominantly white men. And when a person of color who have no power, there's nothing you can do. And yes, everybody think America is this great country. But America is not as great as people think it are. And you need not do nothing but live here in America for a short period of time. And you will see the disparity. You will see the racism. You will see that the system is still working exactly the way it was working in the 1800s. Nothing has changed. Somebody is making a lot of money off of having men in prison. We are not dealing with mass incarceration. We are dealing with a new form of slavery. Yeah. And somebody is getting really, really, really rich off of slavery in the modern era of the 21st century. When you get out from being confined in that way for that long, how did you go about assimilating? You said you were in your friend Lester's house, which is a wonderful situation to be with someone who could keep you safe. It, it, it's a, a learning process, and believe it or not, you're still learning, but uh, I didn't realize how mentally it had affected me because the very first night I imagined sleeping in a soft bed and yeah. I put my hand on the mattress and the bed felt so soft and I couldn't wait to get in bed to go to sleep. 
after sleeping on steel for 30 years, about two o'clock in the morning, I hadn't fell asleep and my heart rate went to racing. And I'm saying, what's going on? I know God didn't bring me from death row to let me die of a heart attack here. So I was so used to sleeping in a cramped space. I had to go in my friend Lester bathroom and that's why I slept on the floor in a small confined space. My body was so used to sleeping with my knees drawn up toward my chest in a fetal position. And for about three or four nights, that's how I slept. But I never did tell my friend Lester that I wasn't sleeping in the bed. I didn't want him to worry. And Mm so uh, eventually I would get back in the bed and some night I could sleep for an hour or two hours. And I would have to go back into the uh, the bathroom to get on the floor and sleep. I go back the next night, try to make it a little longer, and eventually I kind of got kind of used to being on the bed, and that's how uh, life was for me from the beginning. Did you always manage to hold on to hope in in that prison? I did. I, I held on it for a lot of reasons. Uh, my mom taught me, if no one else believes in you, believe in yourself. Somehow. The truth will come out. And so my upbringing played the biggest part in my life being locked up like that. I didn't come to death row with hatred. I came with love for human beings, mankind. And just because I was around a bunch of people that society had said, oh, you would be better off if all of you were dead. It didn't make me feel any less toward those men or in fact I felt honored to be around them and try and show them that hey you are worthy uh, of living just like anybody else what you did was wrong if you did it and I tried my best to show them what true humanity looked like feel like can I ask about you know the very state of being in death row where you are is named after, you know, what is supposed to be, the, you know, your inevitability, your, the, the, this being sentenced to death. It must be so prevalent in your mind the whole time. What, if anything, changed in terms of how you felt about death? I never thought I would live on the night of execution and when they set that human being on fire this smell that you get for the next day, you cannot get rid of it. It, it goes up your nostril and you cannot get it out. Of it. You, you, you find yourself trying to uh, blow your nose and you're trying to get it out of your system, but it won't, it won't leave it's a smell like no other smell. Because your cell was something like 10 meters away from where the chair was, is that correct? Mine was exactly 30 feet away from the death chamber. And... God. 54 men passed by me. You have to put yourself that one day that going to be me. And every time they executed one of my brothers, it looked like it just took a little part of me away as well. Yeah. And you become depressed. You have to find a way to build yourself back up. You have to find a way, not just for yourself, but 
for the men that are around you because all of us is there to be executed. And all of us have a number. And all of us have sense enough to know that one day your number is going to be called. And so you go through a legal procedure and every time you get denied, you get closer and closer to the death chamber. 30 years is unheard of uh, staying on Alabama death row. Uh, the average stay on Alabama death row is normally 15 years. And so yeah. I had to learn so much and I had to allow my mind to just do the thing that it need to do in order for me to stay here. But more than anything, the hope that I had, it was real. The hope that I believed in that one day I would be able to tell my story. And I went to bed with that hope. I got up in the morning with that hope. Or regardless of who got executed, regardless of what bad news I got from home that a family member had passed, I was not going to let them steal that hope. I was determined to hold on to it. I was determined to make that my way of surviving. And sometimes all you have to do is smile. Sometimes uh, all you have to do is say, hey, I'm only able to smile because I have this hope that one day I will be free. You will be free. You have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that there's a higher being, there's a higher calling. I was not going to relinquish that to anyone. And you're telling your story in written form. And we're so grateful to you for telling your story to us today, Anthony. Can I ask you one more question, if you don't mind, before we go? And that's a change you'd still like to make. There are so many, but if I could change one thing, I would change how we treat one another. Yeah. I would change the racism that's not just in America, but in every country, and realize that all of us are here for only for a short period of the time. No matter what you think you own, no matter how much money you have, when you leave this world, you cannot carry it with you. So instead of you sitting around wasting your time hating someone, why not spend that time enjoying life to the fullest? Laugh more, smile more, enjoy life. And then when it's over, it's over. So if I could change that, First, that's what I would change. Do you think they will ever get rid of the death penalty? Yes, I do. You know, I'm a believer that the darkest hour is just before day. And I believe that good people are going to rise up and demand that we do away with the death penalty. And I truly believe that that day is coming. And we won't never have to talk again about a person being executed. We can always talk about when they had it, but I truly believe that is on the rise to uh, be done away with it. And I'm working every day to try to bring an end to it as well. Well, we thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you. I urge you to go and buy Anthony's book, 
It's called The Sun Does Shine and it is so, so powerful. You will never forget it. It's available now to buy and I'll put a link for it in the show notes. We've also included in there some recent articles about the death penalty if you want to go and do a bit more research. Anthony's story will 100% stay with me. Please share it around to anyone who you think would be interested to hear it. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode and of Changes at Large. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or a comment on Instagram. It means the world and it really helps to get more people listening. You can also reach us on changespod at gmail.com. Love to hear from you personally. Changespod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Changes is produced by Louise Mason with assistant production from Anna DeWolf Evans. We'll be back next week. See you then. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.